so uh, I did a little research going into this evening on some of the best uh, movie speeches ever, and uh, certainly it brought me through uh, a hearty amount of solid theater communication. Uh, I'm a sucker for uh, good speeches in movies. Uh, probably my favorite of all time comes from Braveheart. Um, but there is this, this amazing movie that I actually had slightly forgotten about once I started doing research for this. Uh, the collision of a couple really solid actors. One of my favorite actors was in this movie. And there is a speech um, right like at the height of this movie that, that occurs. And, um, and so if you don't mind... And even if you do, I, I, I'd like to show you the beginnings of the presidential speech from Armageddon. Check this out, my friends. Here we go. Just take it in. I address you tonight not as the president of the United States, not as the leader of a country, but as a citizen of humanity. We are faced with the very gravest of challenges. The Bible calls this day Armageddon, the end of all things. And yet, for the first time in the history of the planet, a species has the technology to prevent its own extinction. All of you praying with us need to know that everything that can be done to prevent this disaster is being called into service. The human thirst for excellence, knowledge, Every step up the ladder of science, every adventurous reach into space, all of our combined modern technologies and imaginations, even the wars that we fought have provided us the tools all right, to all right, wage that's good, that's this good, terrible battle. Is anyone tearing up right now? Is anybody tearing up? Come on. I mean, Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck, um, like walking down the red carpet when the, the garage comes up. Just what an amazing moment, right? Uh, some of you guys remember the movie, uh, The World is uh, Getting Ready to Explode because of some meteors, and uh, Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck have to save the world, essentially. And so the president, as he's sending this team of astronauts to space to save them, he provides the speech. Now, I know you're, you're not the president of the United States, uh, nor am I, okay? But my guess is you've had to... Um, You've had to send some people away before, and you've had to think through what it is that you were going to say. In other words, there's been a moment where you knew, in all likelihood, I will probably never, ever see this person or this group of people again. So that being said, here's my first question. If you were sending someone away that you may never see again, what would you tell them? And so the president speaks to the world like maybe his last time ever communicating to mankind, and he chooses in a movie setting his words wisely. If you were sending someone away, if you were saying goodbye, 
and you had the chance to like frame all of the phrases and the words together, what would you say? Uh, I've, I've moved away a couple times uh, when I was younger, and I, I wish I could tell you that I had like crafted those speeches very, very well, but I, I feel like I floundered every time I said goodbye to people that literally I've, I've never, ever seen again. But would you flounder? Would you think through it? Would it be well thought out, poetic even? Could you put a movie score behind it because of how beautiful it is? Well, the reason why this is significant for us is because we are getting ready to see a speech uh, from Joshua after a ton of events have happened. And I just want to remind you what's happened. Last week we studied nine chapters. Tonight, nine verses. Okay, a little bit different. But last week, here's what we saw. Uh, Let's put up the map here. We saw uh, chapters 13 to 21 in Joshua be the division of the land to the 12 tribes of Israel. Again, we've been on this journey watching Joshua and the nation of Israel take over the land, fight many wars, conquer, did Joshua, 31 kings. And in the summary of the last several verses, we saw the land then be distributed, inherited, given to the people of Israel. That's where we've been. So the question now is, now what? I mean, this is kind of what we've been waiting for. It was promised to Abraham five, six hundred years before it was actually inherited. So now what? Like, it feels like a big exhale, doesn't it? All right, we're in the promised land. Everyone's, you know, got a piece of the land. It's even on a nice colored map for us to understand where they are. So the Bible ends, right? Like we don't have to study Joshua anymore. Now what? And I think for a lot of us, the now what's have created a ton of complacency and lethargy in our life. Think about this. There's been moments where you've prayed through, thought through, asked God for something very specific. You've been working towards something that was going to be big. You even felt like gigantic. And then that thing happened You endured, you got through, you were successful, however it is you want to phrase it. And afterwards, wasn't it like, okay, now I don't even really have to live anymore. Like I can can sit back now. There's a certain level of of laziness uh, that can just overcome me, right? So the question of now what will drive our discussion tonight. So instead of 13 uh, chapters, or 9 chapters rather, let's study 9 verses. So open your Bibles to Joshua Chapter 22, my friends, we have about six, uh, seven weeks left in our study, and tonight we're going to see the now what. The land's been inherited, and we'll begin here in Joshua chapter 22, verse 1. When you're there, say, I'm there. Come on. There we go. A resounding, resounding I'm there. Verse 1. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and I know many of you are waiting to not have to pronounce difficult words anymore. Well, we're not quite there yet, okay? Joshua summons these two and a half tribes. Okay, real quick to remind you who these two and a half tribes are, uh, here's a quick map. They're on the east side of the Jordan River. I have highlighted the Jordan there in blue. I did a poor job of, like, showing all the swerves and stuff, but I think you get the picture, Okay. Uh, The red box shows us the land that is opposite of the other nine and a half tribes of Israel. So he summons these these tribes to himself, these people. And he says in verse 2, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, 
and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You, verse 3, even I would say, uh, almost more significantly, you have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, this very day. But you have been, for the first time in this passage, careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. Now, we have uh, some history to, to do here to understand what's happening. He summons these two and a half tribes because these two and a half tribes have a bit of history. Okay? In Numbers chapter 32, what happens is these two and a half tribes come to Moses and they ask Moses for a specific plot of land, the, the one that we just saw in the Red Square. And they ask for that land primarily because it's good for raising cattle. But then Moses and these two and a half tribes, they, they come to terms on when and if these tribes can inherit this specific land. And so quickly, I want to take you back to Numbers. Check this out, just to frame a reference. So Moses said to them, in response to their ask, if you will do this, if you will take up arms to go before the Lord for the war, and every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, verse 22, and the, Lord, uh, and the land is subdued, rather, before the Lord, then after that you shall return and be free of obligation to the Lord and Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. You can see the opposite side of the final verse. What he says is, look, we've come to the precipice of crossing the Jordan, but you guys still need to fight. And we saw this, for those of you that were here in the early parts of our journey in Joshua chapter 1, we saw this same thing come up with these two and a half tribes. So I want to show you that now just from perspective, Joshua 1. And to the Reubenites and the Gadites, again, we're in chapter 22. This is all the way at the beginning. And the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. Where? In Numbers 32, okay? All the way back when? Saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Next slide in verse 14. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain on the east side of the Jordan, in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers till the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then, then and only then, you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it in case you didn't understand the first possession. The land that Moses the servant of the Lord gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. We have one more verse to go here, but I want you to understand this. Numbers 32, and then five to seven years before we see all of this come to fruition, Joshua brings these two and a half tribes in and says, listen, uh, your, your wives, your livestock, they can stay, but your men of valor, they need to fight with us, and it's going to be a long war. It's going to be a long fight. We're going to see much killing, okay? Scripture then goes on to say in Joshua 1, and they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, look at this, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Do you see what's happened here? Chapter 22, what, is, what does Joshua tell these two and a half tribes? You've done it. You listened. You obeyed. 
way back when, this arrangement, that you're going to go and fight, that you're going to help your brothers, that you're going to serve. You did it. You obeyed. You listened. And so he summons this two and a half tribes to then allow them to receive their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan. I think there's some lessons that we can learn from these tribes. So let's start here with lesson number one. Huge lesson. Be where you are while you are there. We see no indication in all of the wars, in all of the battles, in all of the fights that these two and a half tribes are hanging in the background. We have no indication that they're like, yeah, uh, we're just here to kind of support you. We're here to encourage you, give you some hugs when you're downtrodden. Like, there's none of that language. Instead, we can only surmise that, that they're on the front lines, that they're fighting with all of these other tribes, uh, uh, allowing their lives to be put on the line for their brothers. Now, uh, the majority of the people that I talk to about the future, they're already in the future. It's very, very difficult, and I think you'd agree with me, to be fully present. Especially with all the opportunities that we have at distraction, think of how almost impossible it feels sometimes to be fully present. You're sitting with your family, encouraging your family, having dinner with your friends, and then the buzzer on the table vibrates, and both parties look down because you forgot to bring your brightness down, and so like it lights up like a Christmas tree. Uh, you're beginning to finally ask someone that question that you've been waiting to ask, just to get into some of the depths of their heart. And then something pops in your mind that distracts you and uh, takes you off guard. It's, it's unbelievably hard to be fully present. And you won't be surprised by this. Listen, college students all the time come to me, and we're so blessed to have them, uh, so many of them here in our body. They come to me, hey, Mark. So what do you think I should do? I mean, I'm only going to be here for a couple of years. So, you know, I'm just going to kind of hang on the, on the, on the background and, you know, we'll, we'll support when we can. I'm like what, in the, like, what in the world are you talking about? Like, like, be here now. You have no idea what the next two years are going to look like, what's going to unfold, what's going to happen. You're right here right now. So, so be here. Some of you right now can't wait to get out of your job. But are you still there? Again, your life isn't about your job and the pursuit of it. Our lives in Christ are freed up to serve the Lord and to bring glory to him in every context. But you guys know, like the moment you begin to check out of that situation, that relationship, that job, is the moment that all of your attentiveness to the mission there leaves. What I love is five to seven years, maybe even a little bit more, these two and a half tribes are where they are. They fight hard. They serve well. They're not in the background. They give their lives, even put their lives on the line. Incredible lesson to learn. How about this, number two? The temporary sacrifice is so small compared to the final inheritance. Um, so, let's say... Someone busts into this room. And uh, it's a very scary situation, and especially given cultural things that have happened. We're instantly taken aback when they fire a couple shots in the air, and 
and say, all right, right now, anyone who believes in Jesus in this room is going to die. It's horrific to even think about. Some of you guys will remember even back in 2012, we had some threats that were even on me and our body here. Had to deal with that interpersonally. But can I ask you this? In that moment, all of the thoughts that could be going on in your mind, I'm going to lose this. What about that? If it all ends now, then all of these pieces that I was looking forward to, they're almost down the drain. I mean, there, there, were, there would be a lot of things going on in our minds. And certainly there were a lot of things going on in the minds of the apostles. As one by one they were being killed, certainly there's a lot of things going on in the lives of believers all over the world, by the way, that are still dying for the cause of Christ. What I'm saying is these tribes fully believe that the short-term temporal sacrifice, which may have cost them their life, was fully worth, fully worth this long-term inheritance, and in our case, in Christ, an eternal inheritance in him. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? Why does the temporal seem so dominant? This is why last year a lot of what dominated our thinking was, was Christ's call and command in our life to die to our flesh. And the fact that it was our joy to do so. Why? Because Paul said to live as Christ and to die as gain. So if I live here, it's for the glory of God. And if he calls me home, oh my goodness, praise the Lord. Because my faith will finally be sight. You guys with me? So we have to, I hope, be encouraged by the fact that these tribes live under this reality. Number three is massive. Putting others first is unbelievably hard and unbelievably beautiful. This is precisely what these tribes have done. They have said, okay, we know the Lord has commanded us to do this. We're going to weigh it out here. We are going to serve our brothers, even as they're described in this text, our brothers and sisters, in such a way that we're willing to commit years of our lives, putting them first. I mean, we've already reached our land. We've already gotten there. Our, our wives are going to settle down. Our livestock are going to be able to do what livestock do. I don't know, eat grass, be milked, I don't know, whatever, right? But we're going to give up sacrifice for who? For our brothers and sisters. So Matthias, uh, let me put it to you this way. If you were to look around right now in this room, a bunch of beautiful, incredible stories, many people here that you have no idea who they are, but imagine this, imagine the beauty of a local body of Christ who believes fully in the mission that we would say, listen, we're going to embrace what scripture has clearly commanded that we're not just going to consider our needs, but the needs of others. We're going to lay down our lives for the lives of others. We're going to care more for those around us than ourselves. We're going to give up our agenda. Imagine if a group of people completely and totally arrived and believed that that was the way to live. 
We've talked about it here before, like no one would be walking out of the two double doors because everyone would be holding the two double doors for everyone else, right? No, you first. No, me first. No, you first, right? It would would be this constant battle, and, and it would be beautiful because every single person in this room would be sitting in the worst possible seat. People would be parking over at Walmart to walk over to make sure that everyone else had a parking spot. I think the lesson we can learn is it is unbelievably hard to put your agenda down for the love and care of someone else. But my friends, it is unbelievably beautiful. Why? You know it to be true because someone has done it for you. Those of you that are in a discipling relationship, men and women pouring into your life, investing their life, giving up their time, following the mission of Christ. Listen, pouring into you in that way is unbelievably hard. You want to know why? Because sometimes discipleship, as you're pouring in and investing, people turn their back on you and the Lord. Take it from me. I've experienced it. There was a new believer that was here, I thought, many years ago. Pouring in, invested. I mean, I gave this brother my life only to find out two and a half months later with two double middle fingers, it felt like both to me and the Lord, he completely turned his back. Never ever to speak to me again. And it was in that moment that I was reminded if the Lord Jesus had a disciple that betrayed him, then I should not be surprised when those betray me and the Lord as well. It's hard, it's difficult, but my friends, it's unbelievably beautiful. That's why even after being burned in that situation, which so many of you have been as well, in discipling relationships right now or in the past that aren't going as you would have thought, listen, you've signed up to die. You've signed up to give your life for the person of Christ, so be it. And this tribe right now is commended by Joshua for what they have done. So let's look at verse 4. And now, the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them, just like you have not forsaken your brothers, verse 3 says. Therefore, turn and go to your tents, I, I, can, I have never ever heard that in my life because I hate sleeping in tents. So this is one piece that I, have, I can't relate to, okay? Some of you guys, you know, maybe grew up Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. You've slept in tents before. Just so we can understand, how many of you have slept in a tent before? Okay. All right. All right. I thought more were like me, okay? The only time I've slept in a tent was in Ecuador, and it really doesn't count because I slept in a tent in a, in a building, okay? So it doesn't really count unless you've slept outside. Is that fair? Is that true? Okay. So I don't relate to this uh, command here, but Joshua says it nonetheless. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. I've done 101 weddings. I've counted them, okay? 101 of them. Got about 95 coming up this year, feels like. It's awesome. I love it. And uh, there's a really cool moment in every wedding. I always gather with the guys and pray over the guys and commission the groom right before we walk out. And uh, then, you know, there's this moment where normally it's just me and the groom. And uh, nine times out of ten, he looks as though he's ready to urinate himself. You know, he's not quite sure what to do, you know. I'll often, like, reach out to shake their hands, like sweat just dripping from their hands, you know. But there's always this moment. We come out. The doors pop open. 
And I always try to coach the bride and groom on what to think about when the groom sees the bride and to remember the book of Revelation, the wedding feast of the lamb and the bride is going to be wearing white. And I like, you know, talk them, uh, talk them through the gospel. But there's always this moment where I look at the groom and often in tears, as I can just tell he's thinking, is this really happening right now? He's like looking down the aisle and just thinking to him, did I, re- like, I, I seriously get to marry her? Right. And I say it often at weddings that, you know, the guys are marrying 16 steps up. And a lot of times it's very, very true. <laughs> but to look in the eyes of the groom, is this really happening? I think it's that moment for these tribes. Think about it, seriously. Tons of years in the wilderness, watching generations die, and then having to wait longer and then all of a sudden they get summoned by Joshua. And I feel like, like the image I have in my mind is Joshua summoning them. They're all talking them. And they're kind of like looking across the Jordan. And it's just that moment, like, is this really happening? All right. So Armageddon, the speech, Braveheart, the speech, a lot of famous speeches. But all of them pale in comparison to Joshua's speech Right now, his words, his commissioning, as he sends these two and a half tribes away and probably to him never to be seen again. You guys ready? Here we go. Verse 5. Only be very careful, he says, to observe the commandments and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments And to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So he could have said many things, right? I hope the journey is good. I hope your livestock prosper. I hope the tents are still built, right? He he could have said all kinds of niceties. And instead he says three very pertinent phrases that I want to walk through one by one. I've highlighted them here in yellow the first is only be very careful. Now, in a moment of interaction, what are things that you're careful about? Any examples? What are things that you're careful about? What's that? I'm sorry? Where you step. Okay. You're careful about where you step. That's, that's wise, right? Okay, you don't... I hate stepping in a puddle. Don't want my shoes to get all nasty, right? Like... It's very, very good. Yeah, where you step. What else? What are some other examples of your care? Yeah, bro. Speeding. Speeding. Really? You're careful in that? Okay. Okay. That's impressive. You are now, so you've you've paid the penalty, have you? Okay. Maybe a few penalties. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. So, uh, I know many of you guys are parents. I've never experienced careful before. Until I've been invited over to people's houses with young kids that don't have kids. Every parent's laughing because you know exactly what this feels like. Okay? So we're invited. Hey, you guys want to come over for dinner? Sure, right? And we got, you know, a couple young kids. There was a while there we had like, I don't know, Heidi, how many kids did we have under what age? We had a mitt full that were young. Okay, that's what we had. Uh, Thanks, Heidi, for the interaction. Okay? And, um... And so we, we, we come in, we come in the house, 
right? And like, you know, especially when my two young boys were like, you know, two and three, just starting to walk. And I'm looking around and there's like the, the porcelain vase. Isn't that what the famous people say, right? You got, you got like the porcelain thing over here and, you know, this couch has never even been sat on, right? And then, you, you know, you have like grandmother's china, right? And seriously, without fail, anytime as a parent you've been in that house, I mean, I never, ever sat down, right? Like, I left my coat on just in case they kicked us out, you know, because you're just like, don't touch that, don't touch that. You know, it's like, you're just like playing defense the whole time, okay? <laughs> now, maybe you don't have kids, but maybe you have a phone, kind of the same difference. Let me explain. Now, um, I've never seen a group of people culturally ever be so careful than those people that have phones, Okay? Seriously, think about it. The moment you go 30 seconds without it on your person, it's as if you've lost a child, okay? Where is it? I don't know. Like, did I leave it somewhere? You're like patting down everything. Oh, here it is, just where I left it, right? Come on, seriously. Every single person in this room with a phone has lost it. Hey, can you call my phone? I don't know where it is. Right, right, okay. (laughs) Now, now when you're careful with something, There's a heightened level of attentiveness. Yes, where you step, how you live, how you protect people's homes. So let me ask you this. If you were to gauge on a scale of, let's just say, one to seven for random number's sake, one being low, seven being high, on how careful you are, on how attentive you are, at submitting and following the Lord Jesus, how would you rate that in comparison to other things that you're careful about? It's interesting that in his, his initial beginning here of the speech, he makes sure to heighten the level of care, not carelessness, but this care that these two and a half tribes would give to commanding and following who the Lord God is. So the second phrase I want to hone in on from Verse 5, we're going to spend a lot of time here. Only be careful to observe the commandment. And then Joshua in his epic speech says, to love the Lord your God. Now this is really, really interesting because this is the first time in the book of Joshua that the word love is used. The first time. So why here and why now? In fact, uh, next slide, let's be a little bit more specific How do you know if you love God? We talk a lot uh, here about how our human relationships get projected on a relationship with the Lord. And so this question is a precise example of that. Uh, How do we know that we love God and we start thinking through how we've encountered love with one another? Well, it must feel like this. It has to look like this. On Valentine's Day, I'm going to have to go all out, right? You name it. There's certain things that we've experienced in our flesh, in these kinds of relationships that shape this question. But I'm asking you again, how do you know if you love God? In Joshua's speech, he's saying, listen, love God. So I want to provide some frame of reference and answer 
to this question. I started doing research because I want to pr provide not my ideas, but straight from the scripture. And there is a resounding symmetry, Old Testament, New Testament alike, beginning and end, that show us, next slide, this consistency. The things that don't mean you love him, that we think do, there is this consistency in the scriptures that make all five of these things clear. Number one, your church attendance does not mean that you love him. And again, I know probably the majority of you that's not a battle. Maybe that was a generation before us. But let's be clear, just because you're sitting in that black, nice, fold-back chair, it doesn't mean anything except that you're here. We're grateful you're here, thankful for your, uh, that you're here. But, but in terms of your relationship with the Lord, by taking up that seat as I grew up, by sitting in that pew, it, it doesn't mean you love God. It also doesn't mean that you love Him. Next slide. Uh, just because you speak Christianese. Right? Like, like just because you can properly say all of the right doctrinal and theological phrases in a prayer, just because you know what propitiation means, okay, it's not a cuss word, it's in the scripture, right? Uh, just because you can understand certain, certain uh, things that you can actually communicate, it doesn't mean anything. Except potentially that like another language, you've learned to speak it. Next slide, it also doesn't mean that you love him in and of themselves. If you read the scripture, you can even fast and pray and sing. Again, all these things by themselves, they do not mean that you love God. Now, they might be an indicator, but they also might create this false sense maybe in you of security. Now, I, I know some of you are like fasting. Like, I only know believers who fast. Like, I, I don't, I've never met a non-believer who doesn't fast. Well... Scripture makes very, very clear that those who fast and boast about it, that the doing so almost, Scripture would imply sinfully. So again, just because you can read the Scripture, just because you pray, doesn't mean in and of itself that you love Him. Next slide. It also doesn't mean that because you grew up in the church or that uh, you have a believing family. And again, I, I, know, I know most of you are like, Mark, that's silly that anyone would ever believe that. I wish you were in all of my conversations. Because over and over and over, I hear, well, I grew up in the church, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as if that means something. Oh, it means something to your lineage. I'm, I'm thankful, yes, that you grew up around the truth of God, but in terms of your love of God, just because you grew up in it, it doesn't automatically give you like a checkbox. Oh, well done. Right? You wore the clip-on tie and the fluorescent pants in church when you were seven. It's all good. Come on home. Like it's not happening. And lastly, things that don't mean you love him, in and of itself, acts of service. You can sell all of your possessions, give it to the poor. You could do something that you would never even have considered doing before, laying down your life even for someone else. But in and of itself, if it's just a pious act of service, if it's mere morality, then it's not a love of God at all. So, this is a consistent streamline to the scripture. Then, then what does the scripture say about how we can know if we love God? Well, there is a clear consistency. First in John 14, Jesus says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
I almost feel like we, like we could just go home, right? Okay, that pretty much sums it up, right? Like, you can't say that you love me and then completely deny the things that I long for you to follow for your joy's sake. Uh, Jesus says in another place, listen, they're going to know that you're my disciples by your love. This love that's so deep-rooted in you from me that then shown to the world. Just to show you this isn't the only place, later we see in 1 John 5, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. This connection between obedience and love. Uh, Just later in 2 John, we also see uh, this powerful text. Check this out. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. So can anyone make any other observations here except our obedience is one massive indicator of our love of God? So to show you kind of the flip side of it, next slide, let's say it this way. In 1 John 4, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, I love when you just have to take the scripture literally, which is the scripture. Okay, We believe here in the inerrant word of God that every every word of it comes from the mouth of God and is true. So if we were to take this right now for exactly what it means... This gets kind of heavy kind of fast, doesn't it? Let's just read it one more time. If anyone says, I love God, with his mouth or her mouth, speaks it, I love God, of course I do, and hates his brother, he is a liar. So how do you know that you love God? It seems like what Scripture is saying is that our lives show and portray our love of God by how we're living for him. Next slide. So now I feel like I just have to ask. Do you love him? Not based on, did you give him a nice Valentine's Day card? Not based on your attendance here? Not based in your participation in that group or this group? But by the grace of of the Lord Jesus and the sacrifice of his only son Christ who's offered a relationship to God through himself? Do you love him? Now, uh, do you remember the first time you ever told someone that you love them? You guys remember the first time? Guess not. Um, For me... um, it was a, a girl by the name of Amy Bursler. We, uh, she lived across the street from me when I was seven years old in a Waverly, Iowa. That's right, I lived in Iowa. Okay, don't judge me. And um, I, would, I would literally uh, go out to my driveway at night and, and play basketball for hours because I would see her little, like, fingers poke out of her curtains watching me. It was awesome. I mean... I would just like shoot nonstop, right? And then I would like look over and I would see her, you know, checking it out. And so the next day I was like, hey, what were you doing last night? She's like, nothing, you know, just, right? It was really, really cool for me anyway. Anyway, 
So, so certainly I didn't understand the depths of love. Certainly I didn't understand the depths of love. But I remember I went and asked my mom and my dad, hey, can Amy be my girlfriend? And um, they said yes, which I will never tell my kids yes before the age of 35, all right? Like, okay. And so I, I later that day, you know, Amy and I went on a walk down to the park. I don't know, we were eight or nine, and I just, I turned to her, and I, Amy, I love you, you know? And um, I thought I knew what love is, right? Good song, right? Do you remember the time you first said that to the Lord? When you first said, I love you, God? When you first said, there's nothing else that satisfies me but you? You remember the moment where you first communicated to the Lord that he was your king and not just a king? The reason why that's significant is because when the book of Revelation is written to seven churches, there's one church that has a very, very difficult time because the scripture records that they had forgotten their first love. They had become complacent, lethargic, distant. I'm asking you, do you love God? Not the idea of God, not the concept of God. Do you love him? Now, thankfully, in the epic speech of Joshua, he doesn't just say those two heavy phrases. He concludes powerfully, next slide, with this last seemingly very difficult command. Serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, I'm trying to picture these two and a half tribes listening to this, right? I'm a very antsy person, okay? If, if you ever stand by me, you can see it doesn't take long for you to understand. I'm never, I'm, I never stop. I'm always moving, okay? I try to convince myself I'm trying to get my step count up just by bebopping back and forth, right? But, but I picture, I picture like these two and a half tribes, like, all right, Josh, like we get it, man. Like we've served for a long time. We're going to keep serving, you know, pipe down, just send us away. Our tents, our wives, our livestock are waiting. So I picture this antsiness, but at the same time, this unbelievable call, be wholly devoted to the Lord. Love God. Serve with all that you are. And those same words, interestingly enough, are echoed throughout Scripture. Next Slide. Sometime later in Matthew 22 in the red letters in my Bible, and Jesus says in response to what's the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now Joshua is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 11 amongst other pieces, and Jesus certainly is looking back on the word of the past to portray the word of the future, but nothing changes. Full devotion. Now I want to show you what this means. Next slide. This is a a colored graph here. 
Uh, my guess is at some point in your life, someone on a platform or in a setting in a small group has said, okay, I want you to map out all the pieces of your life here. And so for some of you in the red, it would be work. For some of you in the red, it would be parenting. For some of you in the red, it would be school. For some of you in the red, it would be halo, okay? Like, there's all kinds of things that are in the red, all right? FIFA maybe, okay? You know, then maybe in the purple, uh, it would be working out or, you know, exercise. Uh, That's in the red for me, actually. Um, You shouldn't be laughing. That hurts my feelings. In the, uh, you know, in the orange, maybe uh, recreational activities, sightseeing, whatever. Like, there's all kinds of facets. And, and then, you know, the, the teaching point is, okay, so which sliver, you know, is focused on the Lord? And anytime I had seen this taught, there's this, like, you know, this convicting moment, right, where, you're like, your smallest sliver, you know, in this case, the, the purple is, is marked Jesus, And every time that I had seen that, there was something in me that was just not right. I mean, I literally remember like taking this graph and ripping it up once as someone had instructed me to do it. But I can never articulate why. Well, the reason is, when you live with a Christ-centered life, there isn't one aspect of any of these that isn't Jesus. You don't have a job to have a job. You have a job to glorify the Lord. You don't have a marriage to have a marriage. You have a marriage to glorify the Lord. You're not parenting your kids to parent your kids. You're doing it to glorify the Lord. You don't exercise for exercise sake. You're doing it to worship God. Jesus in a Christ-centered mentality in life in full devotion, all your heart and all your soul is at the center of everything, whether or not we submit to it. It's true. And so listen, rip this kind of compartmentalized mentality out of your existence. The commands of the scripture way back to Joshua, including Jesus in Matthew 22, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, it's full devotion. When you come to him, you are saying, my life is yours because you bought my ransom. And so Joshua in this epic speech to these Two and a half tribes. You can just like picture the the theatrical score rising in the background. He ends with do all of these things with all of your soul. And then verse 6 says, so imagine this moment. He blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. Like it's, you kind of want something else right now, right? Like there's a little bit in me that wants like, and they pass the Kleenex around you know, and, it, you know, and they, everyone hugged it out, and Joshua, you know, like, what I, like you, want, you want like some sort of other, but nope, he blessed them, sent them away. It's time. Be commissioned. Go. Live in the land for the Lord. And so they went to their tents. Verse 7, now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a, a possession in Bashan. But to the other half, verse 7 says, Joshua had given a possession besides the, beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when, Jordan sent, uh, when Joshua sent them away, rather, to their homes and blessed them, verse 8, he said to them, go back to your tents, interesting note, with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies 
with your brother. So now they get to share in the spoil of the warfare. And finally, verse 9. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home. All of the years of waiting. All of the patience. Knowing it was theirs to inhabit, they returned home. Parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh. Seriously, have you ever said goodbye to one of your best friends because you had to leave town? I mean, he, these men, like these guys have fought together. They've, they've slain kings together. They've been in the trenches together. They part, the scripture says, from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses way back in Numbers 32. Maybe it looks something like this. Next slide. They crossed over. They had fought. My guess is many bled. And then all of a sudden, Joshua says, go back over and serve the Lord and love the Lord and pay careful attention to how you submit to his commandments. So I'm a little bit heavy. Here's why. If I'm them and I'm walking back across the river, and I'm pondering Joseph's speech. Love God, love God, love God. And I've seen all through the book of Deuteronomy that my love of God is shown by my obedience. There would be this certain level in me that would say, I'm not so sure I can love God fully. I'm not so sure I can be wholly devoted to him. I'm not so sure that all my heart and all my soul and all my mind is even possible. So what do I do? And I feel like for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, this reality that our love of God was shown by our obedience Almost, almost could put a noose around people who are following him. And my guess is, has put a noose around some of you here tonight. Because when I put up the question, do you love God? After which we're talking about that it's based on obedience. Your obedience reveals your love. I think some of you are dealing with the reality that You're not much in for obeying these days. So then you must not love God. So then that comes with it even a harsher reality. But tonight, instead of the weightiness, instead of the noose, instead of maybe the condemnation that you feel, I want to make sure every single person understands one very, very clear truth. Next slide. Please rest in this. We love because he first loved us. 
In other words, there is never one moment where our creativity, where our ability to love him, all of a sudden overwhelms him to the point of, oh, you must love me now. You see, finally, after years and years and years of sharing this, preaching this, teaching this passage, I feel like tonight, more than ever in my life, I understand what's happening here. Jesus says that they will know the truth and the truth will set them free. This truth has set me free because now I believe more than ever that I am completely, and you in Christ, completely freed to respond. That's it. I never have to elicit some sort of action from God that's based on me. All I get to do, all you get to do is just respond to his love. It's to sit back, be consumed and enveloped in it, and then based on the way that he has loved you, cared for you, comforted you, took you under his wing, saved you, redeemed you, based on all those things, then we just get to respond. That's why we say here, worship is our response to God's initiation. We're not singing because we want God to take notice. We're singing because God is awesome, because he's worthy, because he's done something. So listen, the noose of do I love him or not based on my obedience, please understand tonight there is no condemnation in the person of Christ. But if you think that you can say you love God and then live for yourself, feeding from the faucet of flesh, enduring nothing for the cause of Christ and doing whatever it is that you want, be, be, please, be very, very clear on what that means then you must not be responding to the God who loves you. You must be responding then to a culture who has promised to love you or a person who has promised to love you or a flesh who has promised to love you like Romans 1 says, trading the truth of God for a lie. But what about the opportunity to respond to the love of God? How has he loved us? He's given us his word in a loving act to be able daily to dig into the truth and to see the depths of his character. He provided for us the helper in the Holy Spirit told the disciples to wait. The Holy Spirit's coming. You want me to go because the Spirit is coming. He didn't have to do that, but in his love and mercy and grace, loved us enough to give us the Holy Spirit. He's loved us enough to provide relationships. Look around you. Deep-rooted, Christ-centered, brothers and sisters in Christ. Every single one of us, undeserving of everyone else in this room. We deserve to be alone and isolated. Do you believe that? We deserve to be on our own island of misery. And instead, God, through the body of Christ, has provided a way to be connected with one another. He loved us enough to give us relationships. He's loved us enough to give us comfort in suffering. 
He's cared for you enough to the depths of who you are in that precise moment where you felt completely hopeless, like all all hope was gone. He cared and loved you enough to outweigh the lie and to speak again the hope that's found in him. He's loved us enough to take away the debt. The debt had to be paid. The penalty had to be dealt with. He loved us enough to completely pay that in and of himself, to take it fully. He loved us enough to keep his promises, to fulfill every single one of them. There's not one promise in the scripture that he hasn't fulfilled and not one promise that he won't. He loved us enough to keep his promises. He's loved us enough to give us a mission and to make that mission clear. He loved his disciples enough to say, go therefore and make more of us. And he's loved you and I enough to not leave us hanging with some ambiguous thought of what it means to follow him. He loved us enough to take on the full wrath of the Father upon himself. Every single one of us deserving of that and yet loved us enough to do it. Let's stand together. Come on. He loved us enough to provide the means by which we could call on his name. And Hebrew says, draw near to his throne. He's loved us enough to provide this continual way to commune with him and experience his presence. He's loved us enough to extend grace to us even though we deserve death. He's loved us enough to allow us to see that the resurrection actually happened. He's loved us enough to right now provide this precise moment in time where we wouldn't have to create or conjure ways to obey him and impress him. Instead, the body of Christ melted and consumed by the love of God being freed to simply respond. You love and I love because he first loved us. These two and a half tribes didn't have to make something up. We won't have to make something up. Just respond. Has he loved you? Has he cared for you? Has he comforted you? Has he saved you? Has he redeemed you? Has he extended mercy to you? Has he given you a mission? Has he blessed you with the Holy Spirit? If so, then why in the world would we ever say, I want to love myself instead? He loved us enough. Let's sit in the love of God tonight as we worship. Come on. Yes.